welcome to Crypto Facto with Josh Clayman. I'm your host, Josh, from the global law firm Linklaters. On this podcast, you'll hear hot takes from me and sometimes from special guests on some of the hottest topics affecting the digital assets and tech spaces. Of course, these are our personal views only, and nothing said here constitutes legal advice, investment advice, or any other kind of advice, but we still think it's interesting. So hold on tight and let's get to it. Welcome back, everyone. Well, a lot has happened as it seems, as I seem to be saying every single time, Um, but things have been developing in the areas of gaming, AI, crypto, the law, entertainment, all these things all at once. And so we have today um, a guest who is an expert in all of these things, and she's a dear friend. Um, it's Angie Dalton of Signum Growth, and Angie has been with us before, and we're thrilled to have her back. She is a pioneer with deep expertise at the intersection of all things emerging tech, like AI and crypto, and entertainment and gaming. Welcome, Angie. Thank you, Josh. It's good to see you again after seeing you, getting to see you a lot this week. Yeah. Yeah. You know, after we, after we saw each other yesterday um, and we were discussing a lot of the same topics, you know, I went home because one of the things that came up, um, as you may remember, was this discussion about who would identify themselves as a gamer. And so I had a little opportunity yesterday to do a bit of an experiment. It was one of my children's 10th birthday yesterday. And so I was in the car with my three youngest daughters and my mom. And I basically threw out the question, which of you considers yourself a gamer? And I was really curious to see whether my kids would self-identify as gamers. What really surprised me though, was not only did my kids identify, the the most vocal (laughs) self-identifier was my mom. Um, And so, you know, we, I did a little probing after the fact about exactly what kind of games she's doing. And she, she was very quick to emphasize nothing boring, nothing boring, right? <laughs> nothing where she would get bored. So she named off some, she, she said logic games, the Hogwarts mystery, she just downloaded any matching three games, crossword explorer, word hike. And then this was really interesting. She said she had recently taught my kids soda sort. So for those who are, who are wondering what the demographic of my mom <laughs> considers herself a gamer about, there you go. (laughs) What about you, Andy? Like, are you seeing this phenomenon too, where people of all ages now are are saying they're gamers? Absolutely. I was so happy to hear that about your mom. I think your mom and my mom are a few, maybe even months apart in age. And my mom is so proud of her Mahjong scores. And she plays (laughs) Mahjong and Solitaire on her phone very competitively. Um, And it's interesting because... Um, as we talked about in the last podcast, uh, you know, what got me into gaming initially back in, I think it was around 2003, 2004, when I went to my first uh, E3 conference was the idea that just people are leaving the living room they're there and they're doing other things. And I was kind of hoping to follow that behavior. And, um, but it took until really pretty recently for um, the quote gamer, you know, kind of title to, to expand into a lot 
a lot more demos. Uh, and, and I think of your mom and my mom is definitely a different demo than we would typically think of as a gamer. Um, most people think of like first, first person shooter, call of duty player. Um, but even our kids, uh, Josh, like we, and our kids are around the same age too. And like, what, what is so interesting to me about this week and what's happening in LA is, you know, this writer strike and it is really reaching a crescendo. I mean, Pete, I've been talking to producers this week and businesses has halted out of solidarity for these actors and writers. And, um, and one of their main complaints is the threat of AI replacing their jobs. And I think it's really interesting because, um, you know, like I said, people started leaving the living room many moons ago. <laughs> and, um, and not that I'm not that I'm not empathetic to, to, to people who, you know, are kind of um, in that situation. But it's interesting that at the same time that the writers are striking, UGC, which is user generated content, is exploding. And that is people on TikTok creating their own content, people in Roblox creating their own content. Um, Epic's new platform called UEFN, which just launched about seven or eight weeks ago now, um, has, I think, 60 people making at least a million dollars a year creating content. So, wow. um, yeah, so these and 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 the TikTok uh, trend that exploded over the last week that has 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 been a little bit mind boggling to anybody over probably 15 years old is this idea that um, these TikTokers are making fun of AI. They're real people making fun of AI and acting like robots and they're getting paid so many of them are getting paid, you know, seven, $10,000 a day, which is ironically how much these actors and actresses would be getting paid by TV shows. So there's a clear oh, yeah. shift. There's a clear shift toward, um, you know, the world is kind of exploding in terms of content creation and um, almost democratization. We keep talking, we always talk about democratization of everything in, in Signum, and this is another democratization. Um, today on the ARC brainstorm, we talked about uh, the analogies between what's happening in content and education, you know, what's happening in-, in, in um, And what are those you know, analogies? Like, what, what are they? Um, you know, just this, this idea that, um, you know, there was a, there was a thought, uh, for, for many, many years and many people still have this thought that, you know, the way to, uh, be a content creator is to go to Hollywood and, and uh, audition and, and go through the, the, the kind of traditional process. And, and one of the analysts, Sam Corris, uh, at ARC made an analogy to the Ivy leagues, uh, you know, the studios in, in, in LA, or like the Ivy Leagues, and um, everybody wants to get there, and the, the highest quality content uh, is there, et cetera. Um, but they don't even realize that people have started to go to the online computer science, uh, you know, uh, certificate and make more money. <laughs> well, you know, that just triggered something in my mind. I had totally, it had slipped my mind until you just said it when you said people going to Hollywood to go try and make, become a star. Just today on social media, I won't say which platform. But as I was scrolling through, you know, I see this ad and it was saying like something like, is your child interested in being a star, right? And it was saying auditions. But then I looked further. I wasn't, I didn't click on it, but you know, it was just in the banner and they were online auditions and there was a time, but they were for online. So it's just, it's super, it's super interesting how things are changing and how things continue to change because yeah. 
Yeah. It really is. And, and as you and I talked about this week, um, you know, the changes, the innovations occur before the law changes and before, you know, regulation kicks in. It's like, um, you know, creators, innovators, developers, they're moving fast. And, um, and I think that, you know, just like we've seen in crypto, um, you know, there's, there, there's, there's a, um, you know, there's a lot going on in crypto regulation, which we can talk about, um, but we're, we're starting to see the same thing in AI and we'll continue to see it. Yeah. I mean, before we leave gaming though, haven't there been some big announcements? I mean, what is this Google stuff that we've been hearing about? I thought Google was blocking NFTs for the longest time. Has that changed? (laughs) It has changed. I I had mentioned the idea that um, I, I tweeted about this um, last week, but, um, you know, full disclosure, we're investors in mythical, uh, they have a game out, a a game out, uh, called NFL rivals with the NFL. And, um, it's kind of a combination of Madden old school Madden, uh, which has been around for about 35 years and fantasy football. And, um, they've never used the word NFT. They've never used the word blockchain, but yet all the assets are actually NFTs and on blockchain. They've never used the word wallets. They, they hide all that because they're traditional game developers and because they want to attract the general, you know, population. And, um, so what they've seen so far is, um, about one and a half million players in the game, which is, you know, in terms of crypto application, just a massive, massive number. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, but um, John Linden, the CEO, actually led the negotiations with Google Play. Um, and uh, for the first time, the app stores, Google Play and Apple, are going to be allowing um, NFT sales to occur while players are in the game. And, um, you know, prior to this and, and, and actually now it's not launching until the NFL season officially launches August 24th, but, um, but so, so now what happens is for any crypto game, um, if you want to make a secondary sale, you have to leave the game, go to OpenSea. There's a lot of friction in that, uh, from a media engagement perspective. And, um, and we see that in the numbers too, the, you know, if you have to leave the game, you know, the numbers, you know, drop pretty dramatically. Uh, it's about, there's about 10 X more activity when you stay, when a player stays in the game. So what mythical did is they, they negotiated a way for Google and Apple to actually benefit, uh, from this. And, um, you know, uh, they're, they're all really, I, I think every party is really happy, including, um, the players because they just launched a new package today, a new product today, um, and today was the all-time uh, high activity and number of players in Mythical. So we're wow. really excited about this as a as a crypto um, native uh, example because um, because what we've seen in in crypto uh, to date is a lot of speculation and trading, and that kind of is the game. Is you know. Yeah, speculation and trading is the game. Whereas that's not really what traditional gamers do. They 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 collect and they show what they own as part of their social capital. They wanna they wanna demonstrate their wins, right? But they collect, collect, collect. They mostly buy, don't sell, and um, that's what I uh, is so interesting about the numbers we're seeing in Mythical. That's what people are doing. They're putting, they're buying the currency Mythos, and they're playing NFL Rivals, and then they might take that currency and go play. Um, the early version of Nitro Nation, which is another game on the mythical platform. And a a third one is Blancos. But 
um, we're seeing that that currency stay in the game uh, to be used. Uh, so that utility aspect of crypto, we haven't seen, I don't think, uh, until Mythical. So we're really excited about that. Yeah, I mean, I haven't I haven't played any of the Mythical games, but I did uh, when we were together at Polkadot Decoded. One of the things that I watched was the demos of the of the games, um, the excerpts. I was blown away. That was not what I was expecting. You know, it was it was really that's not what I was expecting from a blockchain game. You know, maybe that sounds horrible to say. So everyone cover your ears that I just said that. But <laughs> and you know, thinking of myself, I never think of myself as a gamer. But then when I'm as we've been talking, you know, I've been sort of just rehearsed, like thinking back. I mean, I guess maybe I am one, just not necessarily in the way I think, because I remember playing Atari and then PC Junior and then Commodore 64 and doing like The Hobbit, right? Like this whole thing where like the picture comes up super slow, then playing Zelda and other things on Nintendo, right? And then I feel like I fell off after <laughs> after Nintendo and Super Mario Brothers and all those sorts of things. Then I had to pause, pause, pause. Um, but even now, like I, I tend to play some word games, but wow, when I was when I was watching the demo, not to like be plugging too much on this, but really the the games were not what I was expecting. They looked like movies, you know, mm -hmm. and and like really exciting games, not not what I yeah. think of when I, I don't know. <laughs> I should yeah. be, I no, should be saying that I'm sure blockchain gaming is is making leaps and strides and there's many great projects out there. Of course, let me just caveat this just in my mind what I had been expecting to see and what I actually saw was um you were expecting to see like the cartoony simple stuff on your on your mobile device yeah yeah exactly and my apologies to anyone who's listening to this who is like oh my gosh get the hook get Josh Clayman off of here <laughs> she should not be talking <laughs> about games um but but anyway, no, it's all good. It's all good. We're all gamers now. Yeah. So, yeah. And the, and the one more point on the user generated content <clears throat> or the UGC platforms, Roblox is one, as I mentioned, a my, a Minecraft, um, you know, these are the ones that, uh, that our kids are playing um, and uh, Epic's new uh, UEFN platform. And I would strongly encourage you to play Roblox with your daughters because the creativity in that is very different than also than what you would think about in games because because they're creating almost their own games, their own things within the games. And um, and then they also have the chance to actually trade, get paid. They're, they're, it's it's making little entrepreneurs out of our kids. Yeah, didn't you say that your daughter has a dress shop? Is that right? Yeah, she does. She told me the other day though that she scrapped it. And that's, that's the other funny thing <laughs> is that they're entrepreneurs and, and they might want to go on to the next thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like all so, of us. Right? Because it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's supposed to be fun. So one of the things when you're talking about user generated content, that makes me think of other kind of generated content, right? Mm. Is generative AI stuff that we're talking about a lot and that we're hearing a lot about. And this, this leads also us back into some of the entertainment and art stuff. We've seen recent um, lawsuits against for example, Google, right? We've seen also Sarah Silverman. I believe she brought a lawsuit um, for AI being trained with, with some of her material, right? Mm -hmm. Also, we've seen Getty Images brought cases 
you know, alleging that AI had been trained on their images. And then we also have seen cases, of course, this is not all of them, but um, we also saw cases where certain artists, individual artists, had accused um, Stability AI, Midjourney, and DeviantArt uh, basically saying, you violated our copyrights, you know, of, of billions, you know, many, many artists because you had the AI trained using these images. And so it's really, really interesting as we've seen, uh, we've also seen, of course, fan fiction, like what is it called? Zarya of the Dawn, right? And yeah. that whole mm -hmm. issue with, with um, whether you can protect AI generated material or combination human and AI generated material. I think one of the interesting things I saw this, this week, um, there was a Reuters article that talked about a hearing that took place on Wednesday um, and Judge William Oreck of the U.S. District Court in, in San Francisco had said that he was inclined to dismiss most of the lawsuit brought by a group of artists, the group of artists against those generative artificial intelligence companies, so Stability AI, Midjourney, and DeviantArt. And it's really interesting how, although it sounded like he would let the plaintiffs replead based on this article, um, but and again, even though we say this in the intro, none of this is legal advice, nothing's investment advice, no kind of advice. Uh, but what I would say is one thing I found really interesting about the way that this is reported is that he seemed to draw a distinction between claims by certain artists that their copyrighted works were directly infringed, right, versus the allegations that um, basically the training of the AI, you know, had had infringed. And what um, what the judge said in in some places or in yeah, what the judge said was that, according to this Reuters article, said that the artists should more clearly state and differentiate their claims against stability AI, in part because they have access to stability's relevant source code. So they need to plead and provide more facts. Otherwise, and this is a quote from the judge, it says, otherwise it seems implausible that their works are involved, Oryx said, noting that the systems have been trained on, quote, 5 billion compressed images. And again, as this article points out, um, and the name of this article just is, US judge finds flaws in artists' lawsuit against AI companies it's by Blake Britton, it was released the other day. And by contrast to that, uh, the judge specified that Sarah Anderson, who's an illustrator, her claim against Stability AI for direct infringement of copyrights that she had registered in several of her works, that that was likely to survive um, the initial bid to dismiss. So it's, it's really interesting, and it gives us just some of the first peeks into how these judges might be looking at these kinds of of questions. Certainly, as I mentioned about Zari of the Dawn, that's a really interesting situation as well. And it's actually one where, um, where the Copyright Office flipped, right? Flip-flopped in terms of what it was going to do, ultimately determining that for this fan fiction, that the human, you know, the, the, the story would be protectable, but that these really important images to the story that were AI generated, that those were not copyrightable um mm, and i have it is to, so interesting 
No, no, I was going to say, yeah, it is so interesting, Josh, because um, there are, um, there are a whole world, <laughs> there's a whole world of opportunity that's being uh, created by AI. And, you know, I always talk about this unicorn in a tutu concept, which is that you can type unicorn in a tutu in a text box and out pops this beautiful image. What can you actually do with that image from a professional production um, perspective? Not a lot because, you know, making movies, making games, you know, this, these, these production processes involve physics, lighting, shading, rendering, all sorts of workflow. And that's why it costs, you know, typically, you know, for a triple A game, a uh, hundred million dollars for years. What I'm really excited about in AI is even just, hey guys, let's just keep it simple and stay within the bounds of IP rights and within the bounds of copyright law and think of the magic that can happen and the money that can be made in there. If you can go to a studio and say, hey, you made XYZ movie for a hundred million dollars. How about making five or six of those movies for the same price? And in a shorter time frame. So that's where we at Signum are really focusing our efforts is kind of staying within the sandbox of IP rights. Um, but we are definitely in the early days of, of figuring this out. And like you said, the Zari of the Dawn uh, case was interesting because the copyright, copyright office flipped their decision. Um, you know, and then with user-generated content, it's also um it's also tricky because. Um, there are IP rights and there are copyright laws, and but when the general population, because user-generated content is users like you and me and our kids and everybody, when they start generating content, you, you're dealing with people that aren't professionals in Hollywood and don't know the rules. And, um, you know, one thing that I wanted to ask you about actually uh, was, you know, content creation, even on Twitter, there was, you know, people are creating memes. They've been creating memes for a long time. And um, one thing that that we saw this week was the F FCA in the UK came out with some guidelines on the use of memes on Twitter. And, and they said that if they're promoting financial instruments, especially cryptocurrencies, um, that starting October 8th, new rules will be enforced. And the rules could result in up to two years of imprisonment. I mean, I, I thought, I, I started thinking I was reading about memes in an article and what the FCA was going to say about them, but that's pretty serious um, because that kind of content creation could actually, you know, infringe on securities laws. Yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. There's all kinds of questions. And I think this is something, one of the benefits of, of working at a global firm is that got colleagues in so many different jurisdictions where they have really deep expertise in this stuff. So I'm hoping to actually have some colleagues, well, some colleagues on next week, um, just a little preview for people, um, including about some of these UK rules, but also some of the EU rules. And but but what you're what you're mentioning, I think is is super important. And especially for those of us sitting in the US where we might be a little bit or a lot Americentric in terms of what we think the rules are that apply and the laws. Um, one of the things I've been seeing a whole lot this week, just since uh, last week's Ripple decision in the Southern District of New York, um, are questions around marketing. And without going too deeply into the, the Ripple decision, one of the key findings by this district court judge, and of course, all caveats apply, right? 
Um, it's one district court judge. Other judges in the district don't need to follow the same reasoning. However, it was important for the industry. And that is a piece in which the SEC did not win at this, at the, on this as a matter of law. And that was relating to programmatic sales by Ripple. Without going into too much detail, because we covered this on last week's podcast, you know, one of the, well, the takeaway was that for these algorithmically based blind bid asks, where the buyer doesn't know who the seller is, the seller doesn't know who the buyer is, right? People didn't know if they were buying from Ripple. And in fact, I think it was said that something like only 1% sold in these um, primary sales over trading platforms via blind bid asks was actually bought from Ripple. But one of the things the court said was, you know, as she was looking, Judge Torres, as she was looking at the facts and circumstances, is that perhaps it was not reasonable to expect that a purchaser on this platform pursuant to these programmatic sales would be aware of Ripple's marketing efforts or would know when it was buying XRP that whatever was being said by Ripple would have an effect. And so, you know, it's really an interesting examination of what we normally think about in terms of manner of sale and what we caution people and what came up, you know, directly in the Ripple judges' um, treatment of, for example, what she referred to as institutional sales, right, where there was the creation of an investment contract. I think what we've been hearing from people is, okay, we're not planning to do an ICO, or we already did an ICO, or we're not planning on doing any huge large private sale. We just want to opportunistically sell programmatically from time to time, or maybe not, right? But does that mean now we, we can market however we want? Can we can we have like rocket ships and to the moon and, and everything like that? And it just the purchasers won't be expected to know. And so Angie, what you're what you're talking about with the FCA, I'll get to it in, in a second in greater detail, but just Stepping back with all with the caveats that I am not a UK lawyer, we'll go into this um, next week. But really, I think we have to remember the question of whether something is a security that may be relevant, or whether you're creating a security by certain marketing in any context, in the Howie context or otherwise. That's one question. But you still, no matter what, you cannot you it you can't commit fraud, right? Market manipulation is a problem too, right? Whether you're dealing with uh, a commodity or a security, you know, the CFTC and the SEC both have broad anti-fraud authority and anti-market manipulation authority. I think also we have federal and state consumer protection laws. We have um, state securities laws and so many things. And then we have the rest of the world. And as... As you noted, many jurisdictions have specific um, rules relating to crypto marketing. And that's something we're going to go into in greater detail um, next, next week. But, you know, certainly Singapore, the UK, I believe Spain, Dubai, you know, many places. And these are things in some instances where it could just be a tweet. So just to touch, mm. since you specifically asked about the UK crypto marketing regime, Again, not a UK lawyer, and my colleagues will do a much better job explaining this, but just since it is front of mind, since there were the announcements, there's the restriction that you were talking about, the financial promotion restriction, right? And the idea is that, as I understand it, a person in the course of business must not communicate an invitation or an inducement 
to engage in investment activity unless they're authorized to, right? Uh, or unless an authorized person approves the content of the promotion, um, the financial promotion otherwise meets the conditions of an exemption. And so if you break these restrictions, this can be punishable by jail, right? I think it's two years of imprisonment and an unlimited fine. And some of the agreements entered into by persons as customers or as a result of the communications, they can be made unenforceable. And so um, there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of detail that I won't go into here because some of which I, I really don't know. Um, but from what I do understand is that right now the restriction applies with respect to investment activities that do involve crypto assets that would be characterized as securities, right? It is not broader than with respect to crypto assets right now, but as of October 8th of this year, a wider group of digital assets, including Bitcoin, are going to fall within the scope of the regime. And other rules are also being introduced uh, which would take effect October 8th, that would require companies that wish to provide UK consumers with direct offer financial promotions. So if they talk about how you respond or includes a form by which a response could be made, like a buy button, to comply with requirements. And you know those things may include things like a cooling off period, other requirements. And why does this matter? Well, you know, we have this Ripple decision where it seems that the issuer making promotions relating to tokens that are being sold on the trading platform pursuant to these blind bid asks, that the purchasers, at least in this court's view, would not necessarily be aware or be influenced by or have expectations based on, on you know, the issuer statements. But my understanding from my UK colleagues is that, you know, if an issuer were to be publishing something on social media, right, that would invite folks in the in the UK to buy the token on an exchange, then that would be a financial promotion and within the scope of the rules. So again, after October 8th, that's going to be a much broader, broader set of digital assets that would fall in scope. And so social media messages, if you aren't authorized in the UK or you can't find an authorized person who's willing to approve the promotions and you don't have an exemption, then it would be tough to make those promotions without breaching the restriction. Yeah, I find it Again, really like, I feel like I'm going into way too great of detail. I, I re-emphasize the caveats and we will have, you know, key people in this area talking about this and many other points. But I, I do think, Angie, since you brought it up, it's really important for people to, to keep on their radar. Go on, Angie. Yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off. I think it I think that communications generally is really interesting um, because, you know, back in when we started working together uh, back in 2019, um, you know, with Web3 Foundation and the launch of Polkadot, there was this there was this kind of narrative that if if tokens could get out of securities land and and be you know, under the jurisdiction of the CFTC, it's kind of like people could say whatever they wanted. They're not securities in commodities land. There's no MPI, you know, 
there is no, there are no guardrails on communications because communications can't really affect the markets. And we've seen um, a real shift. I mean, this, this FCA move uh, this week is a really interesting example, but also just the tone of the SEC and the CFTC around communications, I feel like is, is, is sounding more similar than different. Um, there are more commonalities there. I mean, as of, you know, July of 2022, um, the CFTC versus McAfee and Watson, uh, mm -hmm. came out and, and, and said, uh, that there were, um, communications and disclosures, uh, issues due to pump and dump schemes and cryptocurrencies. And that's all, that's, that's kind of all you don't really, we never heard about those really in, you know let's say cotton markets or, or whatever. But then, um, I mean, going back even a little bit further, it was really um, communications and market manipulation and energy uh, that did kind of put this on the radar screen for the CFTC and then crypto brought it right to the top. And I think that, you know, we'll, we'll just hear more and more from the CFTC that will be sounding a lot more similar than different from this, from the SEC on that. And then the other thing, that I think uh, is interesting about as about, about the current regulatory environment and kind of the shifts is this idea that both of these U.S. regulators are emphasizing global coordination and um, international standards so that we can see kind of more granular rulemaking. And you mentioned some of these other countries. I know India came out and said that they were not going to be writing their own crypto laws. They're going to wait for those international bodies to kind of come up with them because these are global markets and people want um, more global bodies. So I'd love um, to hear kind of your thoughts on these um, FSB reports, because those are those were called out by the SEC and the CFTC as really important um, reports this week. And they made nine recommendations to promote the consistency of regulatory, supervisory, and oversight to strengthen international cooperation. So I thought that was um, an interesting topic. I'd love to hear your comments on that, Josh. Yeah, thanks, Angie. I really think it, what you're saying about the SEC and the tone and the CFTC and the tone and looking internationally, it's funny because a lot of times people would ask me, do I think we're going to get a harmonized law that the U.S. is into, right? And I often would say no, right? The U.S. has its own approach. But, you know, over the years, it's become more and more apparent to me, and probably, I think to you as well, like, just how in, although, please, if, if you disagree, like, say, um, but just how involved these U.S. regulators are with the, mm -hmm. the, the regulators outside of the U.S. And that when we see these FSB reports or, you know, the upcoming IOSCO reports that we can talk about, Etc. Like and, and the other types of reports that the U.S. weighs in heavily, and that whether or not people think that the U.S. is a, a digital asset friendly jurisdiction, you know, it still wields a pretty big influence in, in on the world stage. And I think we're seeing some echoes of of some regulators' statements in some of what has come out. Um, of course, there are some statements. For example, um, with the FSB reports that were released on the 17th, um, so earlier this week, which basically said same activity, same risk, same regulation. Now, certainly there are some in the digital asset space and sometimes even 
me, right? <laughs> Where I'm like, is it the same risk? Is it the same activity, <laughs> right? Should it be the same regulation? Mm -hmm. But I, I do understand the viewpoint. Um, what is what is interesting is if you look at the statement in connection with the release of these FSB reports, and FSB is the financial stability report, the the FSB is the financial stability board, for those who aren't aware of the acronym. If you look at what FSB Secretary General John Schindler said, he said, therefore, crypto asset players need to stop operating outside the regulatory perimeter or in non-compliance with existing rules. These players can no longer argue that there's a lack of regulatory clarity as our framework makes clear the standards that should apply. So those are pretty strong words. Um, and one of the recommendations, so one of the reports had a series of recommendations. And I think what's super interesting is recommendation nine, um, which sounds very familiar to what we've been hearing from certain US regulators. And that recommendation said, Authorities should ensure that crypto asset service providers and their affiliates that combine multiple functions and activities, including but not limited to requirements regarding conflicts of interest and separation of certain functions, activities, or incorporation as appropriate. So that, that had some um, ellipses in there. I didn't quote from the whole thing. Um, but it really, you know, some of these are, are indicating that the concerns of global regulators whether a jurisdiction is considered pro-crypto, anti-crypto, neutral, the regulators have many of the same concerns when it comes to financial stability. And so, Angie, do you want to talk a little bit about what, what's what we think is coming up next or what we've been hearing is coming down the pike? Sure. So, yeah, those FSB reports I thought um, were pretty important, uh, and I'm definitely going to read through them in a lot more detail this weekend. Uh, and uh, the the others that are on the horizon in in um, you know kind of on this running list that we're making is this um, IMF S FSB report, uh, which is expected in September ahead of the G20 meeting. And then the IOSCO report, so that's the International Organization of Securities uh, Commissions. In May 2023, so May of this year, they put out a policy recommendations for crypto and digital assets um, kind of consultation report. Um, but it that was really just a preview. Uh, they've said now in October, November of this year, they will have granular uh, kind of more granular detail on their policy recommendations to address the market integrity and investor protection issues in crypto asset markets. And um, and as you said, um, you know, the U.S. SEC will surely play a very prominent role there, um, as will other countries. But I think um, I think that's definitely, um, you know, those, those I think are, are important to watch. Um, another one, that did come out, uh, I, and not this week, but last week was the uh, BIS Bank for International Settlements, which that was just a short report, um, but it 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 was a report that came out to talk about the key elements and risks, uh, and it was submitted to the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors, and what it concluded the the kind of takeaways on that were really uh, around the idea first that. Um, the crypto ecosystem is um, subject to such a high degree of fragmentation um, and is characterized by these con this congestion and high fees and that um, and that would have 
even been the case in a purely decentralized world, which we're not in a purely purely decentralized world, of course, but even if we were. And um, so uh, it, it, that that was one of the main um, points that it addressed is that still needs to be worked out. Like, how do we get to decentralization and how do we get to a point where the fees involved in this, um, you know, new financial market, I guess, come to, uh, are not so high. Um, and then the other, the, the, the second main point that it um, made was really around decentralization and the fact that there is still so much centralization. And we know from going through this with Polkadot that it takes time. These are humans that are, you know, it's usually a couple of people who start off, um, you know, to build some sort of a project and an entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial, um, you know, application and, um, and with the goal of decentralizing and the goal of giving up power in terms of governance and control and um, ownership. And, but that can't, that doesn't happen overnight. So it was a commentary on that. Um, and then the final one was on DeFi. And so uh, expect to see, I guess, more on that front as well. Yeah. Isn't, is, am I incorrect in thinking that the IOSCO report may be focusing on DeFi as well? The IOSCO report is um, going to be exhaustive and DeFi will clearly be prominent because we haven't really seen um, the granular detail on DeFi out of the IOSCO, re IOSCO report that, um, that many people, you know, have been expecting. So I think that that'll be a key part of it. I mean, it's really interesting with DeFi because that's one area along with, I think, NFTs, although again, this is something we'll go into next week with my colleagues, but where um, Mika actually does not include DeFi. And I think, you know, DeFi has been coming up a lot in the news with respect to some of the new proposed legislation as well. So with the, with the Ripple decision, I think one of the things that people on both sides seem to be saying is, hey, will this drive legislation finally? Right. Mm. Maybe those who have said all rules are clear, maybe they would like a little bit more control in determining the outcome rather than having a judge determine this. And so maybe there's a point for folks to come together. Um, certainly right, you know, just a couple of days before, I think two days or, or a day before the um, Ripple decision, the Lamas Gillibrand bill was was reintroduced in the Senate. And just this week. Um, the McHenry Thompson bill was formally introduced. And we'd previously seen a discussion draft that we'd talked a little bit about. Um, and there are some changes to it, uh, some of which people are really applauding. And then others of which people have questions about. Um, I'm sure actually people have questions or are applauding, you know, all parts of it because everybody doesn't have the same view. But one of the one of the things that's been called out. I would like to talk about some of what I think are, and I, I think you likely agree, are, are movements in a great direction with respect to this bill since the discussion draft and really reflect feedback. So one of the things that made me think about the McHenry Thompson bill, other than that it's big news that it's formally introduced, but in the context of DeFi are some comments on Twitter that were raised by Gabe Shapiro, who goes by Lex underscore node on Twitter. Um, and his comments been picked up in by numerous places in the press with respect to how this bill and how some changes might affect DeFi. And it really related to certain exclusions from the definition of what is a digital asset or crypto asset, right? And, and talking about things like 
um, financial interests, things like that. And some others have addressed and, and Gabe more recently has come back in on Twitter since then saying that he had spoken with um, New York crypto lawyer, aka Lewis Cohen. And, you know, they've come to some sort of thoughts, which I do think makes sense that perhaps having a carve out similar to what's in the Lemus Gillibrand bill, where it limits to securities issued by an entity for that carve out, right? As opposed to a system. So I think what Gabe was getting at is the idea that, okay, if you were carving out certain things that might normally look like securities, which when we often say, okay, um, you've got an investment contract, but you also have this whole laundry list of other things that could be a security. I think Gabe's point is that if you have this issued by a system, right, maybe this leads you into um, a world that you weren't quite expecting <laughs> if there is a truly decentralized system at this time. I shouldn't speak for them. I, I should merely call it out and say, check it out. And no matter how you feel about those particular provisions and what effect they may have on DeFi, intentionally, unintentionally, whether you're for it, whether you're against it, I personally think that some, some big wins in this market structure bill, at least in moving from the discussion draft into um, this, this bill that was introduced, um, one relates to the original discussion draft had a prohibition on contributing IP and software code in the three-month period before being certified as a decentralized network. And that's been addressed in the updated draft so that it's really, and this relates to the digital asset issuer or any affiliates, right? Not just to anyone contributing IP. But there was, there was an idea that, okay, you could now contribute IP if it addresses vulnerabilities, errors, regular maintenance, cybersecurity risks, or other technical improvements to the blockchain, or if these, these contributions were adopted through the consensus or agreement of a decentralized governance system. And I think this is really important because regardless of who the issuer is, right, the idea is a decentralized system, open source technology, right, it shouldn't be a barrier just because you might be contributing in an open source way. Originally, also, there was language that had said during the previous three-month period, neither any digital asset issuer nor any affiliated person had marketed to the public the digital assets or the blockchain network or issued a unit of the digital asset. And what they, what they changed in that was that it, the new language says during the previous three-month period, neither any digital digital asset issuer nor any affiliated person described under the relevant paragraph has marketed to the public the digital assets as an investment. Now, I think that is a really smart change, and certainly that's something that we have supported and also that, that others, including, um, I believe, uh, Daniel Schoenberger of Web3 Foundation has been very vocal in terms of um, of advocating for. Yeah, I I wanted to go back quickly to the international, you know, standards for crypto that we're expecting kind of over the next few months and just circle back to Ripple. I know we mentioned it and you did a whole podcast on it last week, but um, you know, that decision by that one judge 
was not binding on other judges. And I believe there is a case, um, another case even in the Southern District of New York, um, but Josh, you've mentioned uh, a case in the Northern District of California. I think those should be on the radar too, because um, if, you know, it, because they could go another way. And I think that that topic that this is only one judge, which, uh, it, you know, and, and that decision is not binding on other judges. Now, of course, given the media and, and uh, given kind of potential inertia and momentum that, you know, these, these ideas have, it could, but um, I think that that is, you know, there's another, there are other reasons why people are looking to international standards. Um, it could get messier in the courts before it becomes clearer. So I just wanted to get your your take on these other cases that are out there. Could they go another way? And you know what what is the likelihood of that? I guess. So I I absolutely think that 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 is a really important point. Is again, this is a single district court judge. Other judges in the same district don't. They're not obligated to follow the rationale, just like the judge in this case did not necessarily follow the rationale of other judges, right? But again, it's also on whatever facts are presented to the court, right? Because it's all facts and circumstances. And so, you know, the case of Ripple may be very different from many other other situations, right? Because Ripple was founded in 2012. These sales were alleged uh, to have occurred um, from 2013 to 2020 when the SEC brought the case. And, you know, different fact patterns could have different results. What's really interesting is that, at least in the case of Ripple, we may we may end up with the same result or we may end up with a different result on essentially the same fact pattern. Because one thing that's been working its way through the courts for a while is what used to be a putative securities class action against Ripple um, in the Northern District of California, but which as of June 30th, Judge Phyllis Hamilton of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District um, of California had certified a class. Um, so it is a class action, a securities class action against Ripple. And um, basically, the judge said that the class met the four requirements for certification. And what's really interesting, though, is that the, some of the reasoning differs from what we heard from Judge Torres. At least it sounds that way to me. Right, so all caveats apply, including that I'm not a litigator. Uh, so one of the things that um, that the court determined was that the plaintiffs had established that common class issues would predominate over individual ones. Um, Ripple had argued that the plaintiffs failed to demonstrate that they'd adequately protect the interests of the class because many of the proposed members didn't agree on the premise of the lawsuit, and that one of them you know, had actually made secondary market purchases so that there were, you know, potentially unique defenses to that. But um, what the court said was that in the judge's view, the merits issue of whether XRP was a security would be the same for all class members and, quote, any disagreements by potential class members over the premise of the lawsuit can be remedied by the standard opt-out procedure. Now, what's really interesting is that's very different because the judge in the other case was looking about where looking at where these buyers bought their tokens, right? Um, and did they know if they were buying from, from Ripple? And she very much appeared to be distinguishing between different types of purchasers and where they purchased. 
Now, the information that I was just um, referring to and in part reading from comes from an article by a reporter named Randy Love. Um, it's from BloombergLaw.com, and it says Ripple Labs crypto investors get, get class status and securities suit. So that's an article folks may want to check out. I think also equally interesting, I mean, and we've gone into this in other contexts in pretty great detail, but many have said that the trading platforms, right, because of this programmatic sales kind of exemption from being a security, at least in this case, is not a, a true exemption, but in, at least in terms of the holding, um, that this is, this is something extremely good in folks' view for platforms. And where this comes up and where I think it's really fascinating, and I won't go into the details of the case or even identify the parties, but you know, the SEC recently had a response in opposition to a motion in a case. And one of the things that they said, I'm just gonna paraphrase here, but on page three of a letter that was, that was written um, by the SEC in this case, they said, Moreover, it, even if you accept the argument that secondary market transactions don't, as a matter of law, implicate the securities laws, the trading platform's intermediation of primary offers and sales, which the SEC said that it had adequately pled in the complaint, would, in the SEC's view, suffice to establish liability. And here... And, and they basically said that for that reason, at least the allegations would be sufficient to defeat um, Rule 12C motion. What's really interesting is that doesn't appear to be what the what Judge Torres said, right? In fact, it was those, those platform primary sales on the trading platforms permit pursuant to programmatic algorithmic blind bid asks, those were not securities. And so it's just fascinating that that came out mere days before the Ripple decision. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, that I would love to dig into more are, um, you know, having been in the securities industry most of my career um, and in, in the, in the capital markets business, there are um, at the market offerings, they're called ATMs um, that take place after a company goes public. They're kind of a follow-on offering of sorts because um, the company can offer uh, secondary public shares on any given day. Um, they 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 will say to whoever, um, you you have uh, the ability to be opportunistic. If if the price is high enough, you can sell some shares into the public, and and a buyer might or won't know. So of course they have a registration statement out there. There's uh, been a like notice given that they could be doing this, but you don't know for that particular share if if you're buying it, you know, from the company or on the secondary market or from another seller. And so I thought that was really interesting because those are of course securities. I mean, those are those are you know issued by companies and and even though a buyer doesn't know. Um, so anyway, I don't know. I just wonder if that could come up that issue could come up with with uh, in, in some of these other cases? It's a really interesting question. I mean, I think, you know, some people may say, well, if the at-the-market transactions are equity securities, well, that may be different from a digital asset, right? Um, and whether mm -hmm. the digital asset is separable from the investment contract. But at the same time, if we're really looking at 
how meaningful is it or how unique is it that one would not know who the seller is? And does that somehow change the character of what's happening? Right. And yeah, whether because these are yeah. because these are fungible. So the idea that you could take, um, I mean, in, in if you just play out logically the at the market offering, you would be saying you could you would you you'd be making the case that that at the market offering because the buyer doesn't know who they're buying from is not a security. It, it would be similar to what, what uh, I mean, the conclusion that was made here, because the institutional sales were deemed securities, and uh, but the programmatic were not. But the institutional tokens and the programmatic tokens are trading on the same market and they're fungible. So that's why it's hard for me to get my head around that in terms of them having different classifications and being fungible. Totally. And I, I do think that in my 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 expectation my belief is that i believe that regulators securities regulators at least are likely to to be taking into taking into account things like what you're saying right of course the the crypto um market has arguments running the other way but i think it's such an important thing angie to bring into the situation because this isn't this isn't something different or new, except that the question is whether, I mean, really what it comes down to in many ways is whether a judge is going to say that the token is separable from the investment contract, right? And in Judge Torres's case, we know how that, that came out, at least so far as a, as a matter of law, um, although she did not speak to secondary market transactions, I'll just be clear. But I think what you're talking about in terms of um, ATM transactions it's very important to 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 think about this stuff because I haven't heard anyone but you really bringing this to the fore, and I do think there are relevant considerations here. Absolutely, um, there's a couple, of and, and it might not. There might be a perfect, perfectly, uh, you know, explainable reason why you haven't heard from that from anyone else because it could, uh, you know, it could be that it's not applicable. But it just feels like it's a follow on security issued by you know a company. Um, and the buyer has no idea who they're buying from. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a very important point to think about. Um, two other other quick things, which I think kind of bring us full circle in a way, or might. Um, but one of them relates to a report that came out um, just recently. It was the BRG Midyear M and A Disputes Report, and what what it did was basically survey about 160, a few more than 160, I think 162 of the leading M&A focused lawyers, private equity professionals, and corporate finance advisors worldwide. And it asked them, you know, which regions and which sectors do you think are going to be disputes hotspots, so like litigation hotspots? And what's really interesting is, okay, I'll, I'll just not go into it for too long, but, you know, in terms of regions, they saw eight Asia-Pacific um, leading followed by, uh, in terms of leading, in terms of M&A dispute activity this year, followed by EMEA, so Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and then trailed by the Americas. But what I think is super interesting, although some may say, well, that's obvious, is that um, just as AI and digital assets and, and related services are driving M&A, they're also expected to drive M&A disputes, in part because of the uncertainty um, and 
and the uncertain application and regulatory approaches of, of laws and that people really need to start, or they would be wise to at least, thinking when they're, when they're doing their deals, when they're doing their risk assessments and their projections, I'm thinking about the likelihood of litigation and really factoring in this kind of uncertainty. And one of the things, the reason I was saying, I think this brings us almost full circle is, this makes me think about some of the AI questions and the NFT questions. So whether you can protect AI created stuff, right? And then whether you can, whether and how you can train your AI, can you train it using copyrighted images if they're compressed? Can you use other types of, of IP? The way this starts, the, what, I, what I'm thinking about is when we go back to NFTs and some questions that regulators have asked, even frankly securities regulators, because actually I think I, I expect that the SEC is going to be focused on things like AI a lot, not just digital assets, but also AI, just like we're seeing in Congress, this, this big focus. And so really trying to understand, so I would imagine other regulators too, not just those two, um, but can when you buy an NFT or when you, when you buy something, first, does the person have the rights to sell you what you think you are buying. So this is like the Hermes Metaburkin case, right? That sort of thing. Like, do you have the rights or are you infringing that when you sell it? What does the buyer actually get? Okay, and then a question of, so not only do you have the rights as the seller, but can those rights even be protected at all if you buy them, right? Because were they created by AI? <laughs> so did you infringe? Did you buy something that was infringing? Did you buy something that was even protectable? And then assuming you actually bought something and the person who was selling it to you owned what they said they were selling you, then the question of whether you can commercialize it, like once you own something, can you enforce it against others? So this again goes back to the enforceability issue, but it also goes to questions about contract, right? And when you're purchasing this, for example, if you buy a particular kind of NFT, can you can you commercialize it yourself? Can you use that image elsewhere and enforce it, enforce your rights against others? And I believe it may have been um, CryptoKitties that I think allowed commercialization of up to $100,000 or something like that. I'd have to check. But I know certain, certain purchases of NFTs, they have prohibited, I think it was NFL, um, um, NBA Top Shots, right? Where they prohibited, I believe, commercialization. And it made me think, Angie, of, of the hat you were wearing. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and what it is and, and why it ties into what I'm saying? So what I had mentioned, uh, what I had mentioned before was that, you know, with Signum Growth, our mantra is to stay within the sandbox of, at least for now, it's early days of where IP rights and copyright laws already exist because there is a whole world of value there in terms of new assets that can be created by those um, by those that IP that somebody owns. And um, this idea of 3D asset generation that stems from something that already has uh, IP rights. And then those new assets that are generated are also owned by the original rights holder. So I, I, again, in the, in these early, this, this first phase of AI for us, that's where, that's where we're, we're staying. On an NFT front, I'm very excited about what NFTs can do for AI. And I think they're going to be very, uh, you know, almost inextricable in the future. 
because as these new assets are developed, or sorry, are created, um, even if they come, or if they do or don't come from, um, you know, an original asset that has IP rights, um, they can be uh, tokenized with an NFT, and um, the provenance of that of that uh, asset can can live on forever. And you, um, it's it's really a way of proving um, creation, provenance, and um, and ownership. And I think that that's um, that's really exciting. So I'll just show you, so I'll show you my cap. I wish other people could see it, but this is G Money's uh, cap, which is amazing, and it's got their their logo on the inside. Ninety uh, uh, CC, which is the last four digits on their key. Uh, public key. And it also has his punk on here. And if I'm at a conference, a crypto conference, somebody can walk up to me with their phone, tap their phone on my cap, my PO app comes up and they can claim my PO app. I can, I can tap my phone on their hat. I can claim their PO app. Yeah. So Angie, for those who are listening, what even is a PO app? Okay. So a PO app is short for proof of attendance protocol. And it basically allows you to mint a memory, um, a moment. Uh, and um, I have uh, I have a pop now that's attached to this hat. And so if somebody comes up to me at the conference and taps the hat, uh, my my personalized you know little sticker can can go into their MetaMask, and then they have a memory of when we met, and it la- it stays on the blockchain forever. So it's just it's one of these really cool experiential. Um, you know, kind of applications that's coming out of NFTs. And um, so I'm really excited about it. And what I love about this hat is uh, the fidgetal movement. So I'm a big believer that, you know, NFTs are really cool, but NFTs are even cooler and longer lasting if they unlock experiences. And then they're even cooler if they're tied to a physical product. Because in real life, if we can tie all these things together and, um, you know, one of the one of the um, examples that I always give is, Let's say you're at a, a football game and the quarterback makes a foot a, a touchdown, and all of a sudden on your phone you get a, a notification that um, because you're wearing this hat, you get to run to the you know snack bar and get a free hot dog or whatever. I mean, it's just fun. It's it's um it's just a way to create kind of uh, experiences and entertainment. And again, we focus on gaming and entertainment. And um, one of the things that we talked about at lunch yesterday. Um, the, the Christie's conference was so much fun. Christie's art and tech conference this week uh, was so much fun. I actually got to get a picture with people, which I immediately posted on Twitter because I was excited to, to get to meet him. And also Kathy Wood gave him a shout out and um, in her presentation, which was awesome. But what I love about NFTs generally is that sometimes there often there is no game like Josie Bellini's uh, quote game, cyber brokers, which is, you know, the individual pieces of the game are NFTs. There's a lore, just like in a video game, a storyline, there are different players, there are quests that 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 players have to um, complete and compete against other players to compete. But in with NFTs, that is the game. There is no actual um, game space online. So NFTs generally are a form of both entertainment and gaming that, um, yeah, that I'm excited about. So I just went on way too long on that, but (laughs) you asked what a follow-up was. (laughs) I mean, 
No, that was great. And I think that's one of the things we were saying yesterday at that AI brainstorm lunch that you had arranged was that we were going to try and play that game, you know, as a group. Yes. Um, I, I do think it's interesting, though, because when you're talking about the hat and, and all of this other stuff, and it really is like gamifying life, right? <laughs> this this yeah. interaction. So we're gamifying everything. So we may as well gamify our own lives. Um, and one one closing thing before um before we um before we end for today, although I can't wait to have you back again, um, is you know what you've been thinking and the way you're you're envisioning this focus on copyright issues around AI's, you know, the impact that it's having and and what it can do and and all of of the opportunity, you know, that that people can find here it's really right in line with U.S. lawmakers. I mean, again, Angie, with the crossover of like entertainment, gaming, et cetera, and regulatory. So yeah. this Wednesday, it was actually the third in a series of hearings by the Senate Judiciary Committee um, that talked about the implications of generative AI on copyright protections. And it talked about short-term and long-term questions about how tech companies collect data to train AI and generate content. It was talking about everything from like, can you opt out? Some had suggested, um, you know, would there potentially be bans? Others, other senators, I think there was a comment about whether fair use uh, was, <laughs> I think someone called it a quote, fairly useful way to steal IP, although certainly fair use has a, a long and important history um, in the law. but. I, I think where you're looking and how you always, at least to me, you talk about, I think the the super highway of where you merge on Mer to what people are doing. Merging, I don't know what I'm yeah, this, right? merging. <laughs> now, what we, what we say is merge onto the highway of behavior that is already happening because to us, behavior is unstoppable. Shifts in behavior are unstoppable. Um, you can't force people to use new technologies. They're either doing something that will kind of include those new technologies or they're not doing it. Um, so we've seen a lot of examples in history where technology is forced upon people and they don't use it. And it's similar in content creation, games, movies, TV shows. Um, these, you can't, you know, creating fun is really hard. And um, there, there's a lot of crash and burn when it comes to content creation. And it's only gotten more and more and more expensive as we've been talking about. Uh, and one of the things that I'm really excited about with all of this advancement in AI is that you know humans and ingenuity of humans and you know invention of humans is going to still be the core of it. I mean, what we're investing in this area is this idea that you can actually empower humans who are already really creative and uh, you know already have a lot of interesting ideas around content creation. You can empower them with tools. Um, we're invested in a company called Sortium, which creates tools that they give to professionals who are um, who are making these games, making this content. And so that's really exciting to me because it right now it costs about $100 million in four years to create a game. What if instead of $100 million in four years, we could have five or six games? So I think we're on the verge of content explosion. And unless a human is involved... It is going to be like this TikTok craze this week where, you know, we're making fun of robots who make content. It, it, we need humans to um, 
you know, an AI cannot come up with something completely new. And that's what works in content creation is something completely new. Okay. So it's so interesting, Josh, what you said about fair use, because I think that uh, we're starting to see companies come around to this idea that, um, you know, these large language models are magical. I mean, one of the, uh, I was at um, a conference and the the head of um, Google, one of the heads of Google AI said that these large language models are the linguistic equivalent to an optical illusion. It feels like magic. And then, you know, you see things like Steam, um, which is one of the largest, if not uh, one of the largest, if not the largest video game distributor. And they pushed back and uh, about a week and a half ago and said, no, actually, we're not going to let these games go through our pipeline that have, uh, you know, IP protected content. And I think you're going to see more and more of that as we go on, because I think that um, it's we're in this magical moment of the early days. And I think that, um, you know, that that and I think that, that the people are starting to kind of get it's starting to get a little bit more real. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting to think about how they would know what's IP protected or not. I mean, some things may be obvious, like if you see like Mickey Mouse, yeah. right, or something like that. But like, if it's a photo somebody took or something, or if it, going back to, you know, the the generative AI and what things are trained on, hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I think that's why these mm -hmm. pending legal issues are so interesting. Wow. It depends well, on, it, it does depend on whether or not the large language model includes, um, you know, IP protected content is just part of its training data. And the more, it, you know, the more, more it does, the more likely that that content will be blocked ultimately. Wow. Well, so, but like Andy you said, it's the gray we're hitting, we're hitting the edge of the gray area though, because if training could influence uh, a, a, an outcome that is, it, there's going to be a line where it's, it's uh, even if it's only slightly different, it, if it's different enough and doesn't include the, I, the actual IP as its source code, you know, we're going to, we're, we're, we're going to have to find that, that line of delineation. Yeah. I feel like whether it's crypto, whether it's AI, we're, we're playing in the gray until we're not, right? So <laughs> Exactly. And we probably always will be because it's so early in both of these technologies, which is what makes it so exciting. Um, I mean, I just love the idea of um, being immersed in emerging technologies and seeing these behavior change and uh, changes and kind of being in this, um, you know, crowd like G-Money and the hat and, um, and then also working in, you know, working through regulatory issues with people like you, Josh, because it's so much fun to kind of untangle what the current, uh, you know, law is and what the legal frameworks are and how they might change, how they might not change uh, as we adopt these new emerging technologies. So thank you, Josh, as always, for providing insight, even on this podcast for me. Oh. Thanks, Angie. You too. And I, I'd love for you to tell our, our listeners, what are you excited about? What's coming up for you that you're really excited to talk about or to tell we'll people see. about? Where should they watch you? Um, well, 
this is what I'm, what I'm excited about that we're pulling together right now, because I was just thinking about it, isn't actually online. Um, it's an IRL lunch. We're going to have, um, we'll probably have, um, we'll have regulators there. We'll have investors and we're going to brainstorm a lot of these topics around um, uh, AI and regulation and also AI and investments. And uh, I think there's a lot to explore there. And Josh, I would love for you to co-host the lunch with me um, because oh God, we always diving into to, to interesting new topics if you're there. So let's do it together um, and, uh, and we'll figure out dates and, and hopefully we'll have some of our listeners join us at lunch. That would be terrific. Well, Angie, it's always a pleasure. And thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and excitement and, you know, knowledge. So I would say, you know, I I don't know what to say because I feel like you'll be on again soon, but I'll say bye for now (laughs) and can't wait to have you back. Okay. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Josh. And there you have it. Our hot takes for today. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Josh from Linklaters. Join us next time on Crypto Facto with Josh Klayman.